Good morning from the Baptist Church. Love to take this time and uh, welcome those of you who are visiting us indeed for the first time. And uh, if you have been coming um, for a long time and you desire to become a member, uh, may I also encourage you that you stick around. Our membership classes are starting today, as Uncle Willie has said. If you are still contemplating whether you should or you should not, uh, then this morning's sermon is applicable to you. As to why the local church is prized in the eyes of our glorious Savior, Jesus. We've been looking at the book of Ephesians, looking at the marks of a spirit-filled family. And as you look at that chapter 5 of the book of Ephesians, we would be naive if we would finish this chapter and only look at it as though it just speaks about the husband and the wife, as in the sinful husband and the sinful wife. That's what I mean. There is a perfect husband. And he is being talked about in this text. There is a wife that this perfect husband has. And this husband pursues her relentlessly. And that husband is the Lord Jesus. He is the one then who is the model. He is the one who is... The one giving the mandate that the husband in the family setting ought to follow. But even in the local church setting, the Lord, as a great husband, sought his bride, paid the bride price by his blood, won his bride to himself for a specific objective. This text is not really, really about marriage of dead men and women who are dead in sin. It is not either a matter for us to debate about. This text demands our devotion. This piece of the Bible demands our inquiry. It demands our, our, all our affections to it. And if ever you doubted why a local church matters in your life, this text calls us to this attitude that we must, with all that is within us as well, love the local church. So stand on your feet with me as we look at Ephesians chapter 5 from verse 25 to verse 33. Hear the word of the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that 
he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Uh, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Amen. Let us bow our heads. Paul is clear in this particular text. He says that this mystery is profound. Being a profound mystery, then we need the help and the aid of the Holy Spirit to unfold these mysteries to our hearts and minds. Let's pray. Our glorious and eternal God and Savior, we bow before you this morning. Amazed at your love towards us and your grace that you have lavished on us. We admit that we were dead in our sins. We were without hope, without God in the world, separated from God and separated from Christ, even from the commonwealth of Israel. We were separated from the covenant of promise, yet in Christ you have brought us to yourself. We rejoice in the knowledge of this particular truth that you have loved us in spite of us. You have loved us for a specific objective. And we yield ourselves to you this morning. And we do ask that your Holy Spirit therefore will lead us and he will guide us into all truth. He will glorify Jesus above all else that you will sanctify us to the likeness of our Glorious Savior, wonderful groom, the one who is to come to take us to be with him forever and ever we ask. May God's people say amen. So we have examined this particular text the last three weeks, looking at the marks of a spirit-filled husband, and we have concluded from this passage that a spirit-filled husband is one who has been ordained by God to lead his home. That's what the Lord has designed him to do. He is designed to lead. Yet he has one duty. And the duty that he has, he does not have many duties. He only has one duty. And that duty is to love. In verse 25, we examined the last two weeks, 
He is mandated to love. In verse 25, we also see that he has a model of his love as Christ loved the church. Then there is the manner in which he ought to love. And we have examined this last weeks. That he loves with a sacrificial love. He gives of himself. Last week we then started looking at verse number 26 to say, He does not just love with a sacrificial love. He loves with a sanctifying love. And this is where I would want us to come this morning. That this man who is called by God is given a model that he ought to look to. He is not looking to social media for models. He is not looking to the constitution of South Africa for his mandate. Because we saw last week and I, I, I showed to you, you can go and revisit yourself, that the, the, the third amendment of the constitution of South Africa actually strips him of his power to lead his home and for some reason men have decided that they will take the back seat even in their homes but in the gospel what we find is that this man who has been stripped of his power by the government has been endowed once again with power from on high the power of the holy spirit and that power, chapter number 5, verse number 18, is the power that then he is commanded not to be intoxicated with wine, but he must be filled with the Holy Spirit to execute his duties and his mandate. But Satan and his demons, they have gathered together to conspire to topple the head of this institution. Uh, they have managed, according to what we see in our context, to do so. They have been able to, uh, to, to, to strike the man as they did in Genesis chapter number 3. But what you see here, beloved, what God is doing, He's restoring that sanity. He's restoring that power. What God is doing in His providence, He comes then to this institution which He did institute first and foremost before there was a government. There was a family. Before there was any president, there was a family. But if we are going to sit down here and speak about family, we will lose the essence of this text. Because over ten times, the names and the terms that are used interchangeably in this particular text are the church and Christ. Amen? And it's worth our effort to spend time here and emphasize the role, not just of the family, because the family, any given family, any family is God-ordained. But if we leave it to the family of two sinners who have said, I do, but in essence they say, I don't. Two sinners who have said that in sickness and in health, in, in reality, they are saying only in hells. Two sinners who say for better and for worse, they only mean for better. If we leave it only to the family, 
we will fail. But we need to come to another family, and that is the church. The church is mentioned in this text over 10 times. In verse 23, the church, Christ is actively and presently the head of the church. In verse 24, Christ leads and guides the church. The church submits to Christ. He is the head. In verse 25, the church is Christ's object of his affection and love. In verse 25, he sacrifices, gives of himself to this particular bride called the church. Verse 27, the church carries a feminine pronoun, she, her. Verse 29, Christ cares, nourishes his wife, the church. Verse number 30, we are members of the body, the church. Verse number 32, Christ and the church. There is this mysterious relationship. Verse number 32 tells us to say, the mystery is so profound. And I am saying it refers to, it's not the husband and the wife. Look at verse number 32 with me. It refers to Christ and the church. Pay close attention to that. The word church, used here as ecclesia, simply means the called out ones. This is a term referring to the assembly of Christians gathered for worship in a religious meeting. This is a company of Christians, of those who, hoping for eternal salvation through Jesus Christ, they observe everything the Lord requires and demands of them to do. And Jesus, verse 22 to 24, is the head of this institution called the church. Now, as the man is called to model this Jesus in this leadership entrusted to him, he is but a mere steward. And as he takes upon himself, therefore, to disciple and to make sure that his home is God-honoring, this man ought to exercise that authority then by implication, as Christ does exercise his authority in the church. And it is worthwhile a reminder, believer, that Jesus is in charge of the church. It is his church. He brought it with his blood. So the local church does not belong to the pastor. The local church does not belong to the elders. The local church does not belong to the congregation. It belongs to Jesus Christ alone. Such that no one dares to say that this is my church. The only one who has the rights to call this is my church is Jesus. It is not the Pope. It is not the bishops. It is not the prophets. It is not the apostles. It is not the pastors. The church therefore belongs to Christ and Christ has taken it upon himself. Never in the New Testament are leaders of a local church referred to the, as to the head of the church. 
Neither is the church viewed as a democratic organization where members are free to vote their own minds and their own way on issues. The key question is, church, church, who owns her? Who possesses her? You will see here that the church is Christ's own bride. And we need to get that in view. Then you understand why Christ loves the church with a sacrificial love. You will then also understand why this particular term we are calling sanctifying love. That term sanctify, you will see the significance of it if you would understand that this one we are speaking about is first and foremost the one who is leading it. So then we need to understand this. Let's distill it in this way. The church is a living organism. With Jesus Christ as the living head. He, Jesus, is the one who has taken it upon himself that as the one who is the creator of the heavens and the earth, as the one who made all things by the power of his word, he is the one who is the founder and the fountainhead of the church. And you see that the church has got agenda. And pronouns are important in day and age we're living in. It says she. He died and gave himself up, verse 25, see, for her. Look at verse 26. He might sanctify her. Verse 27, so that he may present the church to himself. So then the Son, Jesus, the Godhead, he, as the Godson, purchased the church, saved the church, sacrificed his life for the church, but he did sacrifice the church for a particular objective, and that is to sanctify her. Look at verse number 26 with me. So that he might sanctify her. That word to sanctify simply means to present, to set the church apart for God. That's what it means. It means to make a person or a thing holy. So the goal that Christ has in mind in saving you and I, the goal that Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, our Lord's purpose then was that he should sanctify for himself a people. You see, then, by implication then, as we are looking at this, because verse number 28 says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives. I want you to see, don't miss there. In verse 26, we are given this mystery. We are given this picture. We are zooming in on this institution called the church. The idea there of sanctify, which means to make holy, is that of setting someone apart to God for his service. Christians 
are described as those who are sanctified by Jesus Christ or in Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse number 2. Christians therefore, in Jesus, Christians have been therefore set apart to the Lord Jesus Christ. So therefore, any local church ought to be a place that the members thereof are men and women who are set apart, exclusively dedicated to their relationship with God as a holy people. And that is what that word sanctify means. So when we are seeing here, if the Bible is saying the husband ought to love his wife with a sanctifying love, what it means is that the husband then needs to set it in his heart that he is to love his wife exclusively. He is to be dedicated to this relationship with his wife. You see, Christ's relationship with the church was not something that was conceived as an afterthought. It was ordained by God. Chapter number one of Ephesians, let's go there and you see in chapter one, listen to these words. In verse number Three, the apostle marvels and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly places, even as he chose us, we are the bride of Christ, the Father chose for his Son. He chose us in him before the foundations of the world. And this is in keeping with the ancient Near Eastern practice, the father would choose a bride for his son. And that's what God did. But he did this before the foundations of the world. Now you need to ask, what was the objective? To what end did the father choose us? Look at verse number four with me. That we should be holy and blameless before him. So then we can conclude that what the Lord God is revealing to us here, that through his sacrificial death, Christ Jesus claimed the church as his own, to be his holy people. Christ died to devote the church to himself in an, an exclusive and permanent manner, that there is now a marriage relationship ratified, sealed by the Holy Spirit in chapter 1, verse number 15 of Ephesians. Ordained by the Father from the foundations of the world. As the Father ordained Christ's relationship with the church, so also we can conclude here, he does ordain all other human relationships, including the union between a spirit-filled husband and a spirit-filled wife. 
Such that then, if it is God's idea, that marriage then is his idea, a physical male and a physical female. We need to emphasize those words these days. A biological male and a biological female coming together in this holy matrimony. We are saying it is God who designed marriage. To be a covenant, therefore, of sexual, procreative, lifelong union of one man and one woman. As husband and wife, and it meant, it meant, from eternity past, it meant to signify the love that Christ has with his church. Don't miss that. And by affirming that, we are denying that God has designed marriage to be a homosexual. That's what we are denying. It must be one biological man, one biological woman. From eternity past, as ordained by God, not by the constitution of the country. One biological man, one biological woman in a monogamous and not polygamous marriage. Christ does not have two brides. Amen? Or let's use 21st century language. Jesus Christ does not have a side chick. He has one bride. So this then removes all the infidelities, all the unfaithfulness that a man fails now to sacrificially give of himself. We deny all those poly poly polygamous relationships. We also deny that marriage is a mere human contract rather than a covenant made between God or a covenant made before God. You see, in the African culture, polygamy is promoted. This text tells us, if you look at the church and you look at Christ, that notion of polygamy is taken away. But we are living in a, in a, in a, in a time when even polygamy is celebrated. Then you also have this notion by millennials, my contemporaries, where now you get in, no commitments. This text, as you look at Christ and the church, you are seeing one who has committed himself fully by giving not just Lobola, by giving not just a ring, he has given of his life. No wonder we say, until death do us. But there's no commitment. No commitment with regards to the institution of marriage. But I want you also to see this. I don't want you to miss the picture here. We are talking about Christ and the church. No wonder then, isn't it telling that there is also no commitment in a local church setting? Because then we've treated the bride of Christ like we have treated a side chick. 
But Christ loves the church. If Christ loves the church, gives of himself for the church, desires that the church would be sanctified. Well, you know what that means? He desires, by the virtue of calling a church, he is calling her out of the world. That's who we are. We are the called out ones. He has called us from darkness into light. He has called us out from death to life. He has called us from a moment when we were dead, depraved, deceived, disobedient in chapter number two of Ephesians. And he has imparted upon us everlasting life. He has done that. But we're living in a time when we are more concerned about birth control than we are concerned about self-control. We're living in time when we are more concerned about safe sex, but all sex outside the confines of marriage is not safe. It's sinful. Now we have abuses in marriages founded on secular humanistic ideas that man, the chief end of man is to glorify self, enjoy self forever. So you can go sleep with that woman, sleep with that other man, and you can live anyhow you want. Don't mind about that and belong to a church and you call yourself part of the bride of Christ. That is not what you see in the Bible. By and large, the spirit of our age no longer, we see here, the spirit of our age no longer discerns or delights in the beauty of God's design for human life. Many deny that God created human beings for his glory and that his good purposes for us includes our personal physical design as male and female. It is a common to think that human identity as male and female is not part of God's plan. That's what the postmodern thinking is promoting. So you can wake up tomorrow and say, I am Georgina. But you were Gideon yesterday. You think now that you are a woman, but by design, God has designed you as a man. You see, the world lies to us that the pathway to full lasting joy through God and his good design, it's through your very emotions. Truth is what you make. You need to seek and chase after happiness. Don't care about Bible bashers, so they say. You're trying to be legalistic, so they will accuse you. You are homophobe if you speak about that which is right. You see, beloved, this secular spirit of our age presents a great challenge to the Christian church. And we need to ask ourselves these profound questions. Will the church of the Lord Jesus Christ lose our biblical convictions? Will the church of Jesus Christ lose her clarity and courage? And, 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 and will she blend into the spirit of the age? Will she stand out or will she fit in? Will she go with the stream or will she go against the stream? Will she maintain her clear countercultural witness to a world that seems bent on ruin? 
Those are the true questions that we need to ask regarding the church. But the same questions can be asked regarding you as a Christian. If you're a member of any local church, are you going with the spirit of the age? You're trying to assimilate, to fill in. Let's not be offensive. You're trying to be, at best, you are a thermometer. You know the difference of a thermometer and a thermostat, right? A thermometer conforms to the environment. A thermostat, however, you turn on a thermostat, a thermostat, you put a thermostat in water, that water must be hot. You put a thermostat in your heater during winter, that thermostat, once you turn it on, that thermostat will change your atmosphere. Who are you? A thermometer or a thermostat? But then to those who have been empowered by the Holy Spirit, we don't rely on ESCOM. Because the power we have is that inherent power, and that power has been given to us by this one who has purchased us. He has won us. He has brought us to himself for an objective so that we can live counter-cultural. You see, that's why Jesus saved us. He saved us with the sanctifying love. And it is this sanctifying love that we are persuaded that faithfulness in our generation means declaring once again the true story of the world to the world of our peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. We need then to come to this realization that the reason why Christ saved us, he saved us not to conform but to confront the ills of our culture. Amen? He, Jesus, according to John chapter 17 verse 9, he sanctified himself for our sake. so that we in turn will be sanctified. That's a perfect tense. In John chapter 17 verse 9. And that sanctification was as a result of the gospel that was preached to us. You see then by implication, as you look at all this, this sanctification that the Lord God has achieved in our lives, this gospel took a vile sinner and made them saints. The gospel of our God baptized us into this body known as the church. And as the gospel is bringing us into the church, the gospel is not bringing perfect people. The gospel is not saving nice people. The members of the church are not perfect people. 
The members of the church will not be nice people, but they are people who are not what they used to be. They are not who they want to be, but they can say with certainty, I know that he who has begun a good work in me will work it out until the day he returns again. So they live out their lives as living sacrifices. They submit themselves therefore to God because God has sanctified them. In essence, he has set them apart. Look at Hebrews chapter 10 verse number 10. And just nudge your neighbor, especially that one who's praying for me. Nudge your neighbor and tell them, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10 verse number 10. All right? Hebrews 10 verse number 10. Listen to this. The author of Hebrews, as he writes, he adds to this particular truth, and he says, by this we have been sanctified. That's a past completed act with a continuing effect. It speaks of the permanence of Christ setting apart of his bride. How have we been sanctified? Listen, the manner, the means. Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So then, what the Lord Jesus Christ has done, he has sanctified us. He has set us apart. It's a done deal. You are not trying to come to this place or this position where you can be different. You are already different. Second Corinthians chapter 2, chapter 5, verse number 17 says, If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. All the old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. What kind of people are these in the text in Corinthians. I'm glad you ask. Go to chapter number 6 of 1 Corinthians, therefore. Look with me. Verse number 9 to verse number 11. This is what the gospel saves us from. The gospel is saving us from vices of immorality. It's not saving us to live an immoral life. The gospel has saved us from that life. Listen to what the apostle says to the believers in Corinth. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral, nor the idol worshiper, nor the adulterer, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. But listen to verse number 11, I love it. And such were some of you. But you were washed. We're coming to that word. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you.
So positionally, you've been sanctified. Then it is the duty and it is a requirement of every Christian then who is part of the bride of Christ, because we need to apply it there first, to be distinct. Now, let's come to the marriage context. In the marriage context also, it is required then that the husband who loves his wife with a sanctifying love, he loves her, not with a heart that is indulging in sexual morality. Verse number nine. It's a heart that does not have idols. That's a sanctifying heart. The first idol, the idol of self. So the husband is not loving sacrificially so that he will have a happy home. He is not loving sacrificially so that he will have a peaceful home. Like they say, happy wife, happy life. No, that's not the Bible verse. The goal is holiness and not happiness. That's the goal. The goal, you want to have a home where holiness is prized and all evil is disdained. You want to demonstrate and display the glory of God. The means through which this is made possible, therefore, look at the verse 26. It's by the washing. That's how Christ did this. It's by the washing. Which washing? It's, it's the washing of the water of the word. Don't miss that. It is the act of sanctification that Christ was able to achieve in our lives. Let's study there. This is not the washing of baptism. What the Bible has in view here, the Bible is not speaking of baptism because baptism does not save us. Water baptism has nothing to do with our redemption. Water baptism has nothing to do with our salvation. Baptism is an ordinance. The water that the Bible has in view here, it's clear, it's already translated, interpreted, the meaning is given to us, it's with water, with the word. In essence, God used his word to save us. God used his word to sanctify us, to set us apart. And the word sanctify here, it's a past tense, meaning this is an act which God has done and it's finished. This is not progressive sanctification. And as such, as such, we need to have this in view, that Jesus Christ, who is the head of his church, leads his church by his word. Such that in the church, any local church, if it is to be a church that's infective, it ought to submit to the authority of scripture. Any Christian who desires to mature, who desires to grow, you will never grow, my sister, apart from the word of God. No believer will not grow. No believer will not be able to understand what the will of the Lord is if they do not submit themselves to the word of God. If we are to think differently from what the world around us and its philosophies are teaching us, 
If we are to live counter-cultural, we need then to combat the philosophers of this age with biblical world views. We need to put biblical lessons that will be able to guard us and guide us to be able to be sanctified. The Word cleansed us, cleanses us from all sin. The Word sanctifies us. In his priestly prayer, the Lord Jesus Christ says, Sanctify them by or through your truth. Your word is truth. In John 15, verse number 1 to verse number 3, the Lord says, I am the vine, you are the branches. But in verse number 3, he says, You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. You see, we will not go any further if we neglect God's word. So a home where God's word is not prized, no matter how nice you will try to be, your niceness will not produce godliness. Only God's word is able to give birth to godliness in any home. So then the husband's sacrificial love is for this objective that his home is a sanctified place where God is prized, idols are laid down, sexual immorality and all the vices are disdained. It is through the word of the gospel that we are cleansed. It is through the word of the gospel that we are set apart unto God. And when Christ opens our ears to hear the gospel, that he shed his blood to cleanse us from our sins, and when he imparts to us faith to believe the same word, he becomes the true and the perfect groom to us who are then a bride who is set unto him. Husbands, may your wife hate you for being a word-based man. Then you'll be commended by God. A sanctifying love demands that you have a time and a moment in your home where you are reading the scriptures. Christian, this applies to you too. You may say, but I'm not married. You too, in, in your sanctification, in your walk with the Lord, even if you are single and you desire this type of marriage where the man is spirit-filled, pray unto our very groom, Jesus Christ. Pray to him that his gospel will make an impact in that man you are hoping to get married to one day. To omas in the house, pray that your grandsons will be grounded in the truths of God's word so that as to allow and empower them to be these men who are godly. You see then that there is an edification that comes from verse 25, verse 26 and 27. The words spoken in the home 
And the words that we need to speak to one another are words actually in this particular context, words that have a goal in view. Here the Apostle Paul zooms in, not just in the moment, he takes us in eternity to come. You see, the goal is not that we may have a wonderful time here. That's not the goal. The reason why Christ has set us apart, it's not that we may just be a people who are filling the pews as we hear his word, him sanctifying us. No, he looks at us as a trophy. Look at verse number 27. So that he may present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Eternity is in view. In all our gospel pursuits, as we seek to be set apart for the Lord, we need to have this in view that we desire that one day we will stand before our master having submitted ourselves to him as the head, having been sanctified by his word, having spoken to one another the truth in love, having spread this word to those who have not heard about it so that they too may become part of the body of Christ. Then we live daily Daily, we saturate our hearts, our minds with and by the word. And that must be an act of every believer who is part of the body of Christ. This should be an act why you are also expected to attend a Bible study in the course of the week. And read the Bible. Study it. Immerse yourself in it. So as to make sure that we stand before the presence of a glorious God, pure and blameless and without spot. Fathers, the word of God is what you need. Are there issues in your home? Then consult the word. Are you submitting to the word of God, Christian? Are you spreading the word? Do you know that this is the tool that Christ uses to win his bride? Are you saturating yourself with this word? But as chapter 5, verse number 18 says, empowered by the Holy Spirit, therefore we live our lives as those who are wise and we speak and submit ourselves to the word of God. Let's bow our heads and we pray together. A glorious God and Savior, we bow before you as we look at the nature of this love. We stand in awe of what you have done for us because we realize that he's speaking about Christ and his church. Yet aware of our own sinfulness, we ask that you forgive us. Aware of your infinite love towards us, we ask that your Holy Spirit would impart that love deep within our hearts. That we, your people, will be sanctified, will be saturated by your word, will speak and share your word to those who do not know it.
but even in the homes. I pray, Lord, for the fathers. I pray for the husbands. I even also pray for mothers and all sisters here present that we may devote ourselves to the word. It is for the glory and the honor of your name we ask. And may God's people say amen.